I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. Nice to be with you. Guess what? I'm taking a walk in the Norfolk countryside on an evening in late June 2019. How did it get to be late June? The last time I checked, it was January. One day, quite soon, June 2019 will seem incredibly quaint and a long time ago. But at the moment, it's now. And where I am, I can report that it is going pretty well. The sun is going down. I'd say we're entering golden hour. So everything around me is bathed in very beautiful golden light. All the Natals and the trees whose names... I can never remember, no disrespect to the trees. And the big, long, stalky plants that have grown up just in the last week or two uh, with the white bits on the top. It is just such a lovely evening. Hmm. Rosie, Rosie, come and say hello. Come over here. Oh, I love you. I've been away for a few days. I was doing a show in London. And it was so great to get back and see Dog. We spent some time on the sofa, didn't we, Rosie? Just looking at each other. And you looked so beautiful. You know how it is? Sometimes you get back, you haven't seen your loved ones for a little while. And suddenly you think, wow, I, I love you. It's easy to feel like that with a dog. Teenage children, it's a little bit harder. There's not too much sitting on the sofa and staring into each other's eyes. Little bits. Take it where you can get it. Anyway, look, I was going to keep this introduction brief. So let me give you a brief introduction to our podcast number 98, which features a conversation with Maya Foa. She is the director of the human rights charity Reprieve. You may know about Reprieve, but if you don't, let me tell you that Reprieve is a non-profit organization of international lawyers and investigators whose stated goal is to fight for the victims of extreme human rights abuses with legal action and public education. I had a fascinating conversation with Maya about the work she does. Uh, We talked about all the fun things, the death penalty torture, Jack Bauer, drone strikes, Obama, and whether I would be able to get out of Guantanamo. My conversation with Maya was recorded earlier this year in March 2019 in London. And as you will hear, our conversation happened thanks to a previous guest on this podcast. All will be explained. I'll be back at the end for a tiny bit more waffle, but right now, here we go! Rumble, 
I don't think so, but no. is this a trick question? Well, no, because I sort of found out about Reprieve, I suppose. I think I heard Clive Stafford-Smith talking at Brian Eno's studio. Oh, yeah. So we maybe did meet there. Right. Were you there that night? Yeah, I was running around with a man in a cape. Okay, yeah. yeah. So Brian Eno was on my podcast a while back. And then afterwards, he invited me and my producer friend Seamus to his studio to hear Clive talking about the work that Reprieve does. I suppose Brian was kind of doing a, well, in the movies they call them buzz screenings, you know, just to get people together and, you know, introducing people and seeing if they can sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours or whatever. They're always interesting. I think Reprieve supporters are unlike many other groups of supporters of charities, just because Reprieve's a bit odd, you know, so we get artists and some celebrities and just a, a, a sort of very politically aware people. And then surprising groups of, of the general public are, are gravitate towards us. But I do think it's odd. Guilty middle class people. Do you think? People whose lives are comfortable and enjoyable and they read the papers and they're just consumed with guilt and shame for their comfortable lives when they see how difficult things are for so many other people. But those people might I'm not saying you know, that support a, a charity yeah. that feeds starving children in Africa as well, you know, but this is quite a I do think there's a there's something quite radical about supporting quite a radical charity and reprieve is, you know, you sort of we bill ourselves as mm, protecting the rights of some of the people who are most hated by the world. So why would it's it's interesting. I guess it would be useful to start by finding out, for people who aren't familiar with Reprieve, what it is and, and what it does. Yeah, so Reprieve is a legal charity, although we don't only use the law. And we are focused on, we started off being focused on the death penalty, because we were founded by Clive Stafford-Smith, who was a death penalty lawyer in the deep south of America for uh, decades. Is he a Brit or is he He American? is a Brit. Right. He, I mean, he calls himself an American, but in the same way that I'm an American and, you know, we have dual nationality. But okay. He worked there for a couple of decades representing lots of people in the Deep South. And when he came back to Britain, it was just after he had made a documentary about a guy, Edward L. Johnson, who had really sadly been executed and he was innocent. There's 14 days in May. 14 days in May, that's the one. Which made a huge impression on me when I saw it in 1987, yeah. It was the public reaction to that that gave him and the director of that film, Paul Heyman, the idea to set up Reprieve because there was such a strong feeling in Britain that this was really unjust and it it was. So Edward L. Johnson, he was accused and convicted of raping and murdering mm-hmm, someone. Mm-hmm. But and was actually innocent. He, right. Mm. And right through this documentary, it becomes clear to you that this guy is actually not guilty and yet he's on death row and every effort is being made to prevent him from being executed. Mm. But it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really, you know, it was the first time as a young person that I'd 
seen anything like that and i just thought and and you know when you're a teenager anyway and so much of the world seems uh, outrageous and unfair and irrational i just thought what that's mad what's going on yeah how can that happen yeah it seemed unbelievable to me that in the modern world there could be sort of miscarriages of justice like that and you're sort of thinking but but they're making the documentary and how come it's not going to work out? Yeah. And I think the, you know, Clive and the documentary filmmaker, they were really close to Edward and they thought it was going to work out. Mm. They didn't think they were making a documentary about his last 14 days. So, yeah, incredibly powerful. And what's sort of striking now is that, you know, I work on the US a lot. And the number of executions have gone down, but you still have the same extraordinary injustices and you watch the machinery go and you watch how innocence is actually in the words of a texas governor not relevant in the judicial process after a certain point and they're saying that why a sort of legal standard you know that from their perspective they're saying there has to be an end to this somewhere yeah but i think it's a compromise at the end of the day it's a compromise the yeah. system works as well as it can there are bound to be glitches is that I what they're saying i don't think they acknowledge there are glitches though we know there are 150 right. people exonerated and that's only the people that we know about but i think philosophically if you believe in the death penalty and you sort of have to believe in your justice system and the infallibility of it because otherwise how could you continue to maintain that it works. People don't actually want to see innocent people executed. So therefore, you have to create a system whereby innocence becomes effectively irrelevant in the justice system. So you see these time and time again, and then there's a perversity of what I see looking a lot at method of execution questions. A lot of inmates try to commit suicide before their executions, and then they're stopped. And often it's classed as a sort of misdemeanor, you know, they they tried to, yeah, they, they did something against the rules. Like one of our clients, Brandon Road, taken to hospital, he'd slit his wrist, he was terrified of the lethal injection. And then they stitched him up. Uh, they had to delay his execution, which they were annoyed about. But they left the IV in, and then they used the same site for the execution a few days later. And actually, that was the execution that took place using the British drugs from a driving school in just west of here in Acton, London. A driving school? Yeah. Yeah. So How do you mean? There was a pharmacy operating out of a driving school that we discovered, I spent quite a lot of time around Acton, Acton Ways when I started at Reprieve, we discovered had been for six months selling sodium thiopental, which was the first drug used in all executions across the US, to states all over the place in the US for use in executions. And he was happily doing this, the guy who ran the pharmacy. It was, it, it was really just a room in the back of a driving school. It's called El Begon Driving School. And then a little sign, still there, says Dream Farmer. And that's where so, the United States of America was getting its execution drugs really? from. Because a lot of other pharmaceutical companies didn't want their products associated with capital punishment. Yeah, that was always the case. Actually, in 2010, this issue hadn't become as high profile as it has now. Was he also giving driving lessons? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether he mixed his profession, so I don't know whether people, you know, got a little... Uh, if you can't do the emergency <laughs> stop... Then... Take some of this. Yeah. So that was 2010, right? Yeah. And the reason that happened was because it was actually just a sort of problem with the manufacturing plant of one of the drugs they used to use. And it's a, it's a, it's a 
capital punishment sort of falling victim to capitalism here. They used old drugs because they didn't want to use expensive drugs because they didn't want to spend money killing people. And they wanted to use these drugs that were sort of off patent, easy to buy. Problem is, in America, the drug industry is so profitable that not very many companies continue to make these older drugs. So sodium thiopental had been replaced by propofol for almost all clinical procedures. There weren't very many manufacturers, and the one manufacturer that was still making it had a problem at its plant. That's when, and I I don't know exactly how this happened, but you can imagine, you've got these Department of Corrections officials in the US who are responsible for getting the execution drugs. They've got no medical training, no pharmaceutical background. So what do they do? They go on Google. I'd really love to know how they stumbled on the pharmacy in West Acton, London, that then sold them the drugs. Enough drugs to kill hundreds of people but they actually didn't end up using them because we got involved and sort of cut that off but that driving school that was the first of many many weird outfits that states have gone to to get drugs because of course the legitimate medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry they're not gonna you know their branding says we make medicines to save and improve the lives and health of patients. And, you know, doctors sign the Hippocratic Oath. These people don't want to be involved in experimental procedures that torture and kill people. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you initially become involved with that particular case? Because this is a sort of interesting overview of the sort of things you do at Reprieve. Yeah. I'd started with no idea really what I was doing. I was a volunteer at the time and I was just you know, uh, trying to figure out what to do with myself, Mm -hmm. make myself useful. And things came in from here and there. And shortly after I arrived, Clive, the founder, got a call from a death penalty lawyer he had worked with. And he said, I've got an execution scheduled tonight. And we know they didn't have the drugs for the execution. The guy's called Jeffrey Landrigan. We know they don't have the drugs, but they managed to get them somewhere. They couldn't get them from America. And we've just forced the state to say where they got them from and all we knew at that point was that they came from a pharmacy in England so this lawyer in America asked Clive if he could help them figure out what to do about this and Clive who lives in Dorset called the office and said does anybody have half an hour to do a research task on sodium thiopental and you know where it might have come from in England and And sorry to ask an ignorant question but why is that a problem that they're getting it from? Well, it might not have been, right? but it was. I guess sort of in theory, why would it be a problem? If you inject drugs that are bad quality or not what they purport to be, I think the lethal injection is torture anyway. But you can imagine that what you might be doing with the three drug cocktail that they used is using the first drug, which it emerged, came from the back room of a driving school, to put the prisoner to sleep. If that doesn't work, you're still awake when you get the second drug the second drug's a paralytic agent and that is purely cosmetic so the only function in this cocktail as they call it is to paralyze the prisoner just in case the first drug hasn't worked so that he or she can't shout out i'm in excruciating pain i'm awake i'm still here i'm conscious so it's sort of to save the sensibilities of the people looking on precisely more than the actual Yeah, I think it's really interesting because there's a legal prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment in the US Constitution, which when we argue these cases, that's what we're arguing, that it's cruel and unusual. And the more I've looked at this, and like every element of the process is designed not to prevent the prisoner from experiencing cruel and unusual punishment. It's actually designed to stop the public. 
you know, the lethal injection, this medical mask, the paralytic that stops us seeing and makes it more torturous and stops us seeing it, all of that, it's not the best way to kill someone. It's the way that we feel is most palatable. Right. It seems more civilised than chopping someone's head off. Or firing squad or all of the other options that are available. Mm. Anyway, so Jeffrey Landrigan, get this call in half an hour research task, figure out where these drugs have come from. I'd mentioned the first two drugs. You, you said, what happens if, why does it matter where they've come from? Yeah. If the first drug's bad quality, it may not work. That then means you've got a person who has been injected with a substance. Maybe it's got into the vein, maybe it hasn't, but it doesn't do the job it's intended to do. Second drug, paralytic. The individual's totally paralysed, can't say, I can still feel everything. Third drug is uh, kin to you know, acid that's on fire coursing through your veins. It it, it has been admitted by the Supreme Court of America to be unconstitutionally painful, so torture. So what the US has to prove when they kill people is that it won't be torture. So if you're using a bad drug, it might well meet that threshold. So I start looking in 2010 to try and understand where this drug might have come from. And at that point, I hadn't found Dream Pharma, the, the back room of the driving school. But I did establish that wasn't FDA approved, so it wasn't a, a drug that was supposed to go to the US, one. Might have been veterinary, might have been counterfeit, might have been, you know, we don't know the chain of custody. So I've established a few things about the quality that was questionable. And I didn't know anything about the death penalty system at this point. So I'm sending this information across to the lawyer across the ocean. And he says, great, you know, can you turn that into an affidavit? All right. Didn't know what that was. It's a witness statement, essentially. So I learned how to do that, do that, send it over. I have no idea really what the process is. But, you know, I'm working through the night because they've got an execution that night. And you've watched 14 Days in May. You can file things up to the last moment. So we're rapidly doing this, turning the research that was not half an hour, but half a day, uh, with lots of phone calls to people who are very confused by who this person was, into this statement. Eventually, get it in, wait to hear from the court. I remember finding out that there had been a stay of execution. Mm -hmm. I remember going to bed thinking, all right, great, okay, got tomorrow, go back to work on this. And I woke up to the World Service saying that after a brief stay of execution, Jeffrey Landrigan was executed at X hours in the morning in the state of Arizona. And I thought, how? You know the phrase rude awakening? I don't think I've ever had more of a, you know, real uh, sense of what that means. Mm. And it made me... Well, did it make me angry? Probably. I think I probably am quite angry about abuse of power generally, but it also is motivating. You know, it was extraordinary what happened there. And then the Brandon Road case that I mentioned earlier, again, that was with the Dream Pharma drugs. I learnt very shortly after Jeffrey's execution. Brandon had been executed before I started at Reprieve, but I, I learnt about his case because I spoke to his mother. I know her quite well. I spoke to his brother. They both came to Europe. We did some work together and the various doctors and lawyers who worked on it. And I ended up seeing the autopsy photos. This is the guy who tried to commit suicide and they saved his life only to kill him in the name of justice a few days later. And his autopsy photos showed his eyes wide open. And that is evidence that he wasn't put to sleep before the execution. So it was torture. So this man who was so terrified that he tried to kill himself before he was executed then was tortured to death. And it was those two things, plus the investigation and an understanding of the supply chain, the global supply chain, which gave me a sense of, of, of a potential strategy for this, 
those things in those first few days were what set me on the path that meant that now I continue to do that with the team and I now direct all of the casework at Reprieve. Yes. Yes, please. Some people would say when you're talking about people being executed who everyone is fairly confident are guilty, so what? Tough luck. You're talking about bad people who have been horribly cruel to other innocent people. Mm. You know, they made their bed. Tough luck if it's not the right cocktail of drugs. Why should we care? Well, I mean, lots of answers to that question. You know, I, I tend to not get into that debate with people because if they are yeah, pro death penalty I don't really because no, I remember because... when back at school one like you know every now and again at school there would be a fun teacher who would come in and sort of do something wild and off the syllabus or whatever or you'd have some <laughs> debate and one of the debates we had was about the death penalty and I remember that very early on and you know you go through all the pros and cons and everything and you come out of it thinking wow it really there's way more to it than I thought Oh, well, maybe I should. Maybe I should talk more. No, I think it's just that uh, fundamentally certain people... So there are people who just probably not going to change their mind ideologically. They might believe in assuming a person is guilty. And mm. that is a big assumption. And the first point is always, do you trust the justice system? Do you think lawyers always get it right? Do you think that if you have money and if you don't have money, the quality of your lawyer is going to be the same? Do you mm. think that... Race plays a part in how people are sentenced. I think most of us have a decent amount of mistrust in the justice system and then the way different factors influence how people are impacted by that. So in America, race is a huge issue. Poverty is a huge issue in America and elsewhere. And, you know, politics is a huge issue. So depending on your audience, you know, it's actually questioning what we think about the structures that lead to a death sentence being given because they're imperfect, right? Mm -hmm. Everywhere and discriminatory everywhere. And it is always political. I've now worked on this for nearly a decade and in every single country where I've worked on death sentences and executions, it always sort of comes down to political decision-making. In what way? Give us an example. An example, all right. So... Okay. Just just a sort of obvious example of politics at play. Mm -hmm. You take Saudi Arabia at the moment, post or a few countries in, in the Middle East and North Africa, but post-Arab Spring, we've got at Reprieve clients who were children who went to peaceful protests, pro-democracy protests, right? You'd think in Britain, pretty okay to do that. In fact, probably think that's quite a good thing. It's um, a fun day out. Yeah, right? Fun day out. Turns out that... One of them, or there's a group of three, Ali Dawood and Abdullah, 16, 17 and 17 years old, went to one of these protests in Saudi Arabia. All of them were ultimately sentenced to death. Ali Al-Nimr was sentenced to crucifixion. They and still what, go with crucifixion. Right. So he gets, that was to try and make a point. Not with nails, though. Uh, well, I was actually told by a lawyer who I won't name, but who has worked with Saudi authorities on different cases, commercial cases. He said to me one day when we were doing quite a lot of media about Ali's case and the crucifixion, he said, you know, Maya, they, they're a bit confused by this. You know, all this all this attention on the crucifixion. You know what they told me, Maya? I said, no, tell me, tell me, what did they say? He said, well, 
Do they know? We behead them first. <laughs> so the method, so that we're clear, is beheading, then crucifixion. Okay. So with those cases, though, on the charge sheet for Ali al-Nimr, he was attending the protest, administering first aid at the protest, literally on the charge sheet for which he gets sentenced to death. You know, other things that you can get sentenced to death for in Saudi Arabia, taking screen grabs of tweets was among the charges that one of the guys that we've we've worked on. So stuff that kids in this country do all the time, you know, that you could be sentenced to death and executed for as a child. I think if you talk to somebody who's pro-death penalty, they're probably thinking about extreme cases where you really have the worst of the worst of the worst thing you can imagine. I think even in those cases there is more to the story than the headline or our gut reaction. And I also think, fundamentally, obviously, a justice system needs to be more than our gut visceral reaction mm-hmm. to something that we find horrific. That's sort of a reason we have processes and that we don't all go about killing one another in the street and mob violence. Um, what happened to the boys in Saudi Arabia? They're still on death row. There was a commitment, actually, and this is sort of, where I think it's really heartening to be able to work at an organisation like Reprieve because we really advocated strongly for them. And and at the time, there was some British engagement with the Saudi prison authorities. uh, And we were saying that given our value system, we believe that children shouldn't be sentenced to death and executed for attending protests, that we needed to be really robust in our condemnation of that and also not be complicit in practices that could see us as the Brits engaged in death sentences abroad. So we talked about this quite a lot. And in the end, David Cameron ended up having a conversation live on uh, with Jon Snow, I think. And he was asked, he was challenged to raise the cases of these three kids. And he ultimately did raise them with the authorities in Saudi Arabia. And there were, really sadly, the, the following January, there was a mass execution of 47 people, which included one person who had been arrested as a, as a child who went to a protest, whose case we didn't know about before the executions. But Ali Dawood and Abdullah were meant to make up the 50, and they weren't executed. And I think they weren't executed because there was so much international attention on their cases. And so there was sort of scrutiny on this process. If there hadn't been that, they would probably have been executed. So they're still on death row. Obviously, these were kids. They were going to school. They had bright futures. And it's awful that they're not yet, um, you know, free and able to go about their lives. At the same time, it's a it's a positive result that they haven't been killed, obviously. But is it, though, just a case of the regime sort of waiting for the right moment when uh, people aren't paying attention? Well, I think that's exactly why we would say we need to keep the pressure on yeah. and we and we try to. I think that's sort of right. I don't know, but I think there's some level of protection because of the international attention. At the same time, obviously, their sentences should be commuted. If they've been given a guarantee, and David Cameron, I think, it was another member of the government actually said, well, I've been assured that the the boys will not be killed. If that's the case, then what we need to see is a commutation of their sentences. But yeah, I was, that's, it's, that's just, there are examples like that from these really bizarre, absurd examples all over the place. Going back to the death penalty sort of pros and cons, as it were, I suppose the arguments in favour of the death penalty would be, obviously, first of all, that it's a deterrent, that people think, maybe I won't do that murder because I don't want to be executed. And also that it's a form of 
justice, retribution, you know, that it'll make people who've lost loved ones to crazy people feel better and that there is some kind of balance in the universe that has been restored by the perpetrator being removed. So I think on on the deterrent point, yeah. actually quite often you ask what I say to people when they ask me to say why the death penalty is wrong. I'll ask, why does it work? Tell me, tell me why it works. Because there are no studies that prove that it has a deterrent effect. In fact, it's the reverse. Anything that we have sort of suggests that it doesn't have a positive impact on crime. Rather, the studies that we see suggest that places that have the death penalty, there's often more violence, more violent crime. And, you know, you just have to look at the UK and the US and talk about murder rates. It's very clear we're a country without the death penalty. Our murder rates are much lower than in the US. So that's a, Proportion- that's a myth. Proportionally speaking, yes. yeah. Right. But that's a myth, I think, the deterrent effect. And, it, and it, it, there's also a sort of logic to why it's a myth. You, the second point you made about sort of vengeance, some crazy person has killed somebody, I think, were your words. Well, if that person is crazy and they've killed somebody, I don't know if them thinking, oh, wait, in 20 years I might be executed. In that moment of madness or that moment of passion, you know, horrible things happen. And I don't think people are thinking very logically at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe with tax evasion... You're thinking, okay, now if I take this risk, what's this reward? You know, that's a different kind of crime to a crime of passion. Yeah. And then that point about the victims I feel really strongly about because what I find is is really criminal, actually, in the process in lots of countries is that victims of crime or people who've lost loved ones to violent crime are used in the process to call for the death penalty. And in effect, they're being told by the prosecutors, you know, if this happens, if this person is executed, some, you know, decades later, potentially, you will feel better, is sort of the message they're trying to give. And that's so harmful, actually. There are lots of victims that I've spoken with who have said, we don't want the death penalty. We want a resolution to this. We want some kind of closure. I think closure is a difficult concept, but we want some way of moving forward. We don't want a long, protracted process. And if you have the death penalty on the table, it will be longer. And justifying it in the name of the victims, when you don't give the victims a voice in the process, actually, and they don't. If a victim says, I don't want the death penalty, the state ignores it. In America, that is. In other countries, victims' voices are are actually given a bit more weight. So I think that's a misnomer and also really, really problematic to use a group of people to serve a political end. And I maintain, you know, the death penalty is political. There's a reason why governors, when they're seeking to be re-elected, kill more people. There's mm-hmm. a reason why before an election in another country, you might see, you know, the, the sort of show of strength force from the leaders, which involves brutal crackdown on people. Do you know this quote from John McAdams? Marquette University Department of Political Science in favour of the death penalty, he's reasoning as far as it being a deterrent. If we execute murderers and there is in fact no deterrent effect, then we've killed a bunch of murderers. If we fail to execute murderers and doing so would in fact have deterred other murderers, then we have allowed the killing of a bunch of innocent victims. I would much rather risk the former. This, to me, is not a tough call. So he's saying, look, they're murderers. Maybe it's not an effective deterrent, but I'm up for taking the risk. Okay, but so add one other factor into that equation. What if we know that we get it wrong and we execute innocent people? So I would say, all right, we have the death penalty. 
We've got absolutely no evidence that it has a deterrent effect. So I'm going to execute a whole bunch of people and get it wrong a whole bunch of times without having an impact on violent crime, if anything, having an adverse impact on violent crime and killing innocent people. Yeah, on the okay. other side, so for, to use his sort of logic, uh-huh. illogic, you put people in prison, you don't execute them. You put a bunch of people in prison. Now, if they're guilty and if they would have committed further murders, you stop them from doing that because they're in prison. If they're innocent, after 10 years or hopefully fewer, will be a long time, maybe we'll have proven that they were innocent. And maybe in the meantime, we'll have identified who the actual murderers were, who maybe were out roaming the street killing people. So surely that process whereby we can protect society and at the same time not kill innocent people is better when there's no proven deterrent value in having that additional bit of murder Mm. by state. Mm -hmm. It just sort of feels, I think, especially when you get really horrific crimes you know when people are definitely guilty and they've done some beyond horrific stuff you just think well see ya well yeah i mean you know there's no we don't need you sticking around anymore you are a bad apple whichever way you slice it whether you're crazy whether you're responsible whether you're not you've done this thing and we as a society would rather you were no longer with us. Well, some people would say that's what prison does. (laughs) It takes people out of society. But we do feel things as individuals, right? right? And I go back to that point that we don't want our justice system to be acting on our, you know, basic visceral instincts. You know that I can force this information out of you. Dad! If you ever come into my office and talk to me like that again, do you understand me? Dad! Turn on the kids' channel. I'm done talking with you. You understand me. I love you. You understand me. Dad? Who the hell do you think you are? Dad? There's no lawyer. It's just you and me. I love you. Speaking of things that don't work. Yeah. Or that we're told don't work. Were you a 24 fan? Did you used to watch 24 with Jack Bauer? Already said really crap at pop culture. Didn't no, haven't seen it. What I know. All right, come okay. on, Maya Foa. Oh, this this is a, a <laughs> yawning chasm in your cultural knowledge. You, you and are absolutely also right. Something that is very relevant to what you do because I think you'll find mm. Agent Jack Bauer. I don't know if he's an agent. Played by Kiefer Sutherland. You know the show I'm talking about, though, right? Jesus Christ, I don't think she does. I mean, you were probably busy doing something positive in the world when it was on. But I remember it particularly because it was one of the first big kind of what we now call box set shows. I love how you say that to me like I don't know what it means. Because you're right, I might not. But I have just about got You know what box a box set, set is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Well, 24 was the first big trailblazing type of box set at the dawn of the real explosion in popularity of dvds that people went out and bought as a box set and they watched it like five episodes in an evening kind of thing yeah and the conceit of 24 this is fun i didn't think i'd be explaining 24 (laughs) was that it took place in real time so you've got 24 episodes each an hour long and it's a day in the life of jack bauer as he deals with, I don't know, it was usually terrorists of one kind of mm-hmm. or another. And there was a, a sort of existential terrorist threat. And he would be going around trying to get to the heart of it. 
and there'd be kidnappings and members of his family would be kidnapped and threatened and oh, all kinds of terrible things would happen. And Jack Bauer would be going around kicking ass and taking names. He probably didn't even take the fucking names because he was so busy kicking asses. <laughs> and <laughs> so when was this? This was like the beginning of the noughts or something okay. around then. But anyway, one of the, the reason I bring it up was that one of the main motifs and one of the main tools in Jack Bauer's toolbox was torture. Mm. And he would find a guy who was definitely bad. <laughs> and, you know, we knew from watching the show that this guy, there was no shady area, like maybe he is, maybe he's not. He's a bad guy. Right. And he knows something that Jack needs to know. There's a member of his family being held hostage. They've got 20 minutes to live because the room is filling up with gas or water or whatever it might be. And Jack has got to find out where the, the place is located. But the fucking terrorists aren't telling him. They're just going, no, I'm not going to tell you. Fuck you, Jack Bauer. So at a certain point, there's nothing else he can do. What do you do? He has to get a biro and he has to stick it into the guy's leg like right through his knee or whatever and then the guy tells him because you would wouldn't you if someone was sticking a biro in your knee you'd tell him anything to stop it you're not necessarily going to tell him the truth and if you don't actually know you're still going to say something to stop the pain that's the problem with torture right. i mean obviously also inhumane but no it doesn't work it doesn't work. of course if you're being tortured you're going to give fake information or you're just going to give any information and sometimes people are so delusional because you've been yeah, you've gone into such a such an altered state through the. Oh, I'm thinking about the war on terror style torture that Jack Bauer would do stipulations that if they gave him bad information, there would be consequences. So he wasn't getting bad information. It was like, listen, if you tell me the wrong address, and what if they don't know? As with many, many, many of the wrongfully held, not even convicted people in Guantanamo, what if what if they get tortured? Really, they've got the wrong guy, right? So let's take an example. Just just take you know, you get these people, right? Yeah. Some of them very likely the wrong guy, and the reason, and I'm talking about Guantanamo now, but we could take any other of the kind of scooping post-war on terror era. So the reason people get picked up or got picked up, and sort of some eighty-six percent of people in the in the first wave, it was through bounties that got offered by the U.S. government in Yemen and Pakistan, you offer a bounty of, say, $5,000 for somebody who they say, you know, give us a bad dude. That's like a quarter of a million in equivalent at the time. So very easy for people in seven years worth of salary, whatever, very easy for people to give up names because then they're made for the next seven years. So you don't know anyone, you give up a name, you do know somebody, but you're afraid of them, you give up the other name. So a bunch of people get put into Guantanamo in, in, in sort of the early days. And even one of the commanders said, I just keep getting given these uh, Mickey Mouse terrorists. That was his word, Mickey Mouse terrorists. Like, so not, not actual terrorists. Anyway, one of these kids who got picked up, thanks to a bounty. Sorry, I keep thinking of like coconut now that you keep saying bounty. <laughs> I'm going to get that out of my head. It's a really expensive chocolate bar. I was going to say, like, I don't think I'd give people up for it. But, bounty. I mean, that that, that mix-up, the, the, the chocolate and the money bounty, does go to the heart of this, this particular case. Because okay. he was 14 years old, Mohammed El-Grani. He gets interrogated. He was tortured really badly, 14 again. And then, so he spoke a certain dialect of Arabic and the interrogator spoke a different dialect. He was The interrogator was Yemeni, he was Saudi. And there was confusion over one word and the word was Zalat. Mm -hmm. And the interrogator was trying to find out about money. But Mohammed Al-Ghani thought it 
meant salad because that's what it meant in his dialect. So this interrogator, this is a kid who's been tortured really badly, keeps asking him about salad, salad. Where did you know? But where did you get? So well, I didn't, I didn't need salad. But what, what if you needed? Where would you get the salad? Where would you go? And he said, Well, I mean, I'd go to probably this market or yeah. or this market, or I'd go. And he gave these addresses mm-hmm. for salad. Of course, CIA decide that he's a big financier for Al Qaeda, and he gets held in Guantanamo for years. He's fourteen. He's held for seven years. He's now out. But you know that sort of thing. You torture that kid, and the kinds of torture that they used: Russian roulette with like guns and knives and nails, mock executions, holding them upside down, just waterboarding, awful stuff. That of course, if you, I mean, you just get into such a state, you'll say anything to stop the torture. And many of these people didn't know anything. So, you know, listen, I should probably watch 24. I'll, I, I'll concede I that. Really but I'm not going to say it that that is an accurate representation <laughs> of, you know, the, the, the system. Nothing is that simple. I guess that's sort of one of the fundamental principles for me of doing this work, that it's so easy for people to paint the world in black and white and it's comforting and what we do sometimes to immigrants in the political and public discourse what we do to people we've decided are bad people and we're sort of far-ish from Northern Ireland and the troubles but that was there was a whole group of bad people we good people and bad people and we torture the bad people you've now got the war on drugs where we've decided that basically addicts um, who I think some of us might say are quite vulnerable people are these bad people and we've got to kill them all and that was actually you know very racially driven when the war on drugs was created that notion that concept in the US and and now you've got Muslims who are being attacked and of course you know you have Jews who are also that considered to be or presented as the bad people it's just dangerous and I feel that really strongly and I think as humans and then advocates and people working in this area absolutely our job to tell stories that explain the complexity of of any given situation and not to flatten it but I think that's also our duty as artists as well so you know I don't don't know about 24 we'll have to have another conversation about that after I've watched it (laughs) Uh, it was exciting though back in the day I haven't watched it for a while I'm sure it doesn't stand up very well but even then I remember people were saying is this good He's torturing a lot of people. <laughs> Are we, is this enjoyable to watch? Should we feel good about this? I guess if we put it the other way, right, that, you know, you take the group of people who are not currently being targeted and then let's go far away, like, you know, the use of drones after Guantanamo. You know, right, like, which I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so from some hub in Nevada, you've got a bunch of drone operators who are effectively playing what, could seem like a video game and they're seeing these people on a screen and they get to sort of press a button pull the trigger as it were and a drone you know drops this missile and lands somewhere in a community in a village and kills a bunch of people Mm-hmm. And, and generally they kill a bunch of people this this idea that there's precision is is both wrong in terms of the the number of people who can be harmed wrong in terms of the strategy take for example the double tap strategy whereby you drop uh, a missile and then people die and the rescuers who go in to try and pull out survivors you drop another one then and they all get killed so you know that is a lot of people without a great deal of precision 
And then also the the sort of methodology by which we pick the targets based on certain metadata, which is, can be very, very faulty, colour of the skin, the kind of headwear that, they, that they're wearing. You know, all of that stuff has been shown time and time again. We have a report called the Multiple Kills Report. You only die once? Well, not true. According to the US, these high-level targets have been killed, like some of them seven times, on average in our report, four times. So who's right, actually okay. getting killed along the way before we maybe kill the high-level target if we actually get them? Yeah, yeah. You know, flip that round and imagine that, you know, in, in North London, where we are now, you've got you, well, you're wearing a baseball cap, so you're probably a bad dude. And, and I've actually, got a beard. You're, and you've got a beard, and, and you're a man. S- also, I'm smug, and I'm white and middle class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's make it that particular group of people. <laughs> but even on the basis of what the Americans might look for, you're talking to me. Yeah. We've talked about Saudi Arabia. We've talked with some amount of thoughtfulness about people who might be wrongly in Guantanamo. You could be a target right now. But let's say America's in coalition with another state that has drones and they're just going to drop them, just going to drop one now. And they're going to use all the metadata, the fact that we met at this point, probably after I leave, because, you know, in this scenario, I'm not the target. Yeah. Unlikely in real life. But, um, you know, that then gets justified. It suits the government's agenda to be able to say, these are good guys, these are bad guys. We're protecting you from the bad guys. Bollocks. It suits the government's agenda. It's also presumably what a lot of people want their government to be doing. They want to feel protected. Yeah. Yeah. But I hope... Yeah, maybe I'm wrong here. And I think part of why I've stayed in this job and and been quite successful in some things is that I'm probably really, really, I'm a blinkered optimist and maybe quite naive. But I think my belief is, and by the way, it sometimes gets proven right. I do see the best in uh, in a lot of people. I think that if you presented all of us, you know, just as a member of the British public with really sensible, pragmatic solutions, which also nod to the fact that things are complicated, but say... You know, yeah. Well, let's take ISIS. Absolutely horrendous things happened. Over 17 years on from 9-11, surely 18 now, we know that something awful happened and we need to understand how that happened and why in order to stop it happening again. Why did 15-year-old kids go over to Syria to a war zone? Surely we need to understand that so that we can prevent stuff happening again. I mean, that's just sensible. That, for me, we can all be talking about the value of protecting society. We can all be talking about the cost of different criminal justice solutions and and, and the burden on taxpayers. And let me tell you, Guantanamo, the death penalty, these different things that we're doing are so much more costly than really sensible solutions that are also in line with the rule of law and human rights. Yeah. Did you ever meet uh, Obama? When he was in office? I did not. I did not. I'm um, waiting for my invitation. Right. Is that, okay. is that, are you about to say, is this the big reveal? He's in the kitchen. <laughs> and uh, he's going to come and talk to us Amazing. about... Amazing. Are we going to have bounties? There's going to be bounties. There's going to be banter. He's going to tell us why he thought drone strikes were That's a good such idea. A good thing. Uh-huh. Even though he was such a nice, cool guy <laughs> and everyone was all excited when he And he, he shut Guantanamo. And was yeah, really he was going to shut Guantanamo, but then it turned out not to be possible. But... You know, Obama, he was a good guy, right? He was a better alternative. And now, especially in the age of Trump, you know, Obama was like the last 
statesman, noble, intelligent, not posed, the last. measured. <laughs> the most recent. That's what I mean. Trump, the, 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 yeah. the most recent one. And and it was so hopeful when he got in and, and for all sorts of reasons. And you thought, well, here's a guy, here's a clearly sensitive, intelligent guy. Uh, who's got some good ideas about how things are going to change. Now, you're making faces at me. Because obviously, in a lot of ways, that didn't work out. Just what my face does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't work out in a lot of ways. But, I, but, yeah. but I, I mean, I don't know. I've never met the guy. He hasn't been on my podcast. <laughs> but still, I wonder what Obama would say. I haven't actually heard him address the, the topic full on. Have mm, you? I mean, no, what were his justifications? Presumably it was sold to him as this is, given all the options, the best bad option. Mm. We hope that it will reduce collateral damage. We hope these will be a more precise way of taking out bad guys than a lot of the alternatives. There may be a lot of bad things about it, but really, Obama, I you bet. need to get behind yeah. this. I mean, And then... I'm sure it would be nice for you to close Guantanamo and I'm sure a lot of your supporters would love it, but really it's not realistic for all these reasons. Have you ever seen the film Dave with Kevin Klein? <laughs> Have you seen it? No, you haven't seen it. Come on, Mike. I'm going to send you a box set of 24 and Dave. So Dave is a comedy, but it's about Kevin Klein plays a guy who is more or less the double of the president. Okay. So he has a job as a president impersonator. He turns up at parties and things like that. And he looks exactly like the president. And one day the president, the real president, gets a heart attack. So he is then, for the sake of stability, drafted in to double for the president so that they don't have to announce that the president is ill because it's in the party's interests for, for stability and continuity. So you get a, a frothy satire of uh, American politics and the kind of compromises that are involved with mm. being in office and the reality of how hard it is to, to make the world a better place. But, I mean, they don't really see it through in the film Dave. He just, like, he's, also, he's got a friend who's an accountant played by Charles Grodin and his friend, the accountant, comes around and looks through, like, the budget and everything and goes, who did this budget? I could... So he sits up all night and he fixes the budget. You know, he gets rid of the deficit and all this. It's, it's kind of like everyone's fantasy of, like, the government's insane. I, You know, I could I sort could them that. out. It's basically what President Trump thought. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know it's what I mean? Like, becomes. let's assume that Obama is a good guy in the spectrum of political figures. Yeah. How does a good guy then come round to using drone strikes and fail to close Guantanamo? Like, argue on his behalf. How do you think, you know, as a no, devil's advocate? No, I can. Advocate? I can. No, and I don't even need to be a devil's advocate. I, you know, plenty of devils in the world that don't need any more advocates. I think just reasonably, and again, this is about looking at things from every angle. I look at Obama, I think what he represented was really important. I think the backlash is incredibly depressing. But I think it was incredibly important what he represented. And I think the way he went about things you talked about, sort of statesman-like, was admirable. I think he was in a really, if I'm being reasonable, he was in a really difficult position around Guantanamo. He, you know, the real politic in America, the more work I do in America, the more intractable that system seems. I think it's actually much easier to influence things in Britain than in, in America, but just because of the, the reality of their... A lot of the way money plays a role in their in their sort of um, you know governance systems, but anyway, lots of reasons for that. Very very difficult, and he didn't have the vote. So Guantanamo was a problem. Um, 
And do we all think, yeah, drones was a terrible idea. Maybe does he think it is? I don't know what he says at the dinner table. He's a really smart, thoughtful guy. I'm sure he's looked at this in the same way we've looked at it. Thought, well, actually, well, legally, I don't know. You know, but was it popular? Yes. Did it look like it might be? It's, it's a vote winner, right, to be able to say, I'm not going to put troops on the ground. I'm just going to have these very, very high-tech mechanisms and, you know, AI and we're going to use big data and there's this big idea that we can be more precise. The reality is that it didn't work out that way, much like when Bush later talked about Guantanamo. He said it had been a failure. Uh, and I wonder whether Obama will at some point say that that was a mistake, that policy, the drone policy and the kill lists. I think that's quite possible. And I would never... You know, I think we have a tendency sometimes on the left to sort of eat our own. So whilst I can... Chomsky be- is so damning about Obama, like pe- basically saying he was worse than any of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that I would, there would be a really interesting conversation to yeah, have with yeah, Chomsky yeah. If, that, if that ever happened. Uh, I think it's about as unlikely as me going to have, you know, a bounty bar with Obama in the kitchen right mm. now. But no, I think, you know, we can have the benefit of being in a human rights organisation like Reprieve is that we can be really, or just any third sector organisation, we can be really robust, right? We have views and we can hold them really strongly. When devising strategies and communicating with decision makers, which is what you do a lot of the time, you nuance those strategies. And to be effective, you've got to be smart about it. You've got to work out where your interests lie. You've got to, you know, so there's some amount of pragmatism involved. But we get to have a really strong, idealistic and yeah, robust bottom line on certain things that politicians they could, I think, but often don't and don't feel they could. And maybe it's just that they haven't been smart enough about the way in which they communicate their vision to the public, or maybe the public isn't ready for that. That's I'm not in politics. They need to watch Dave. They need to watch Dave, yeah. Kevin <laughs> but I think it's all these different views can coexist and people yeah. can, he can actually maybe think the same way as I do about some of the issues and the damage done by policy. But when faced with two bad options, he picked a bad option. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to be really, this, my sector, needs to be strong in communicating why the policy options are problematic that exist and, and the fact of there being other options. And a lot of this is about communicating and making sure that the message is actually quite simple because what you said earlier about the right I think the right are really good on PR sometimes it's a very simple message sometimes a simple message doesn't even make sense which is why I made the comment about logic but Reprieve is not a political organization in that way though no 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 but you know it's not political in that we're not party political but everything you do of course is has a political dimension yeah I've seen you on TV giving interviews every now and then and 
I'm always impressed by how cool you stay and because it is often a very emotive situation that you're you're dealing with in your work. How do you stay so cool in those situations? Where, like, do you find yourself in situations where people are really in your face and very emotional and getting really angry with you? Yeah, I do. But I don't know if this is a sort of crap answer, but I'm really interested in understanding where that sort of emotion comes from. Maybe there's a way in which this work, which is really emotional, I'm able to do because there is a degree of detachment, obviously. Fundamentally, anybody who works on these sorts of cases, you get very attached to people. Executions are awful. People being tortured is awful. People being detained without charge is awful. You know, that it does have an impact. But at the same time, what's amazing about doing the work is that you're able to think through logically a strategy that works. Mm-hmm. And I really like logic. So when people get angry, emotion has got the better of them. And and maybe they'll be saying something really compelling and they'll be saying it with a lot of aggression. I'm interested and I'll meet that aggression with probably a degree of distance because I'm immediately going into a sort of intellectual space, I I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't think I even get angry with sort of in, in, in my daily life about this stuff. Not from people who oppose my views. I think when allies question or think that maybe you, you know, because you all care and you're working towards the same thing, that's the only place where I think it... It has a profound impact, and I think that's the same for everybody who works in this area. How does the work get funded? You know, how do people listening to this help if they want to help? Yeah, well, everybody can help in lots of different ways, so not just you didn't funding, ask me to say this, by the way. I, I really didn't. No, this, that's but true. I, am, but I, am. I know that's why I started with not not the fund. Yeah, I mean, Reprieves is funded by really generous donations by members of the public, as well as some foundations and mm. governments, but it's. Yeah, that's a constant battle. You want to be able to continue to do the work and the funding structures are insecure. So there's that and it's wonderful. People who give regular donations, we are extremely grateful to. And then there are other ways like we have, I've talked about cases where the international attention on the case has been what saved lives and also people looking at cases in a different way and communicating that to other people I think just engaging really proactively just engaging with the material we've got quizzes on the PRB process in the in Guantanamo now on our website which is really fun and you you see we'll shortly be launching one on on different methods of execution but you you get to sort of walk through why this is so absurd I'm gonna google it yeah PRB process can you pass a PRB reprieve okay Go on, see if you can pass it. Can you pass the test to leave Guantanamo? Start the quiz. I'm going to predict right now that I'm not going to pass. Well, give it a go. (laughs) It says on the website... It's not impossible to pass. Indefinitely held without charge or trial, Guantanamo detainees must pass a periodic review board, PRB, hearing to be cleared for release. In this quiz, we put you in the shoes of a Guantanamo detainee at a PRB hearing. 17 years ago, you were kidnapped, tortured, and rendered to Guantanamo. Despite not being charged with any crimes, you still must pass a PRB to prove that you're no longer a threat. Although it sounds simple enough, you might find that, faced with a series of bizarre and arbitrary questions, the reality is far from straightforward. Do you think you can pass the test to leave Guantanamo? And so this is a real set of yep. questions? Yeah, real okay. things that have come up in PRB hearings with real results. Do you like American TV? 
options are no i don't watch tv no i prefer to watch tv from my own country yes when i get out i'm going straight to blockbuster to rent my favorite series blockbuster's closed now I so, so what's your answer um, <laughs> nowhere i'd i'd fall i'd fall at the first hurdle uh i like american tv yes yeah <laughs> so i suppose yes when i get out i'm going straight to blockbuster to rent my favorite series <laughs> that's what i'm going for if you are released you get no choice regarding the country you are sent to and you may not be allowed to return to your home country if you had a preference would you rather be sent to albania belgium or el salvador Uh, Belgium, they've got beer, I think. If you're sent to Belgium, how will you support yourself? Options are, I don't know, I don't speak Flemish or know anyone in Belgium, but I'll work hard, learn the language and find a job. My family will support me until I find work. I have friends in Belgium who can help me find work. Well, the last two don't apply, so I'm going to say, I don't know, I don't speak Flemish or know anyone in Belgium, but I'll work hard, learn the language and find a job, because that's the kind of person I am. Uh-oh, you failed your review. Guantanamo detainees are expected to give lengthy descriptions of exactly what job you will do when you leave Guantanamo, even though you don't know what country you're going to and have been out of the workforce for years. Your next PRB hearing will be in two years. Better luck next time. But would I fail just from... I only answered three questions. Yeah, you failed, yeah. Yeah. You can give it a, another go. There is a route to winning, but I tell you, it took me a long time to find it. And in any event, when you do, yeah. you've basically inculpated yourself. So you, you have to admit guilt in some way. And then they say, oh, well, you've, you've passed then. But nobody is getting out under the mm -hmm. Trump administration. And indeed, we've got people who have been cleared for release. There's a guy called Tofik. He's been cleared for release, I think, since 2002, perhaps. So he passed his PRB. He passed his PRB. And PRB, right? It's six defence and intelligence agencies. So it's a serious thing. He passed. He was cleared. He's been cleared for many years. Didn't say he wanted to go to Belgium. Didn't say he wanted to go to Belgium, although nothing against them. Then they literally gave him, they measured him up for new clothing for release. He's never been released. He's still there. Bobby held indefinitely. There are another six others who are, or there are six maybe, who have been cleared. They're never getting out. And so what, what is the point here? Six agencies have said you're not a threat. You're not dangerous. Mm. And, you know, at a cost of every night, I think it costs the US taxpayer $29,000 to keep Guantanamo open. And you can certainly imagine how people who'd been through that experience or being innocent and had family members killed by drone strikes or whatever yeah. would be much more likely to be radicalised if they were ever going to be. Well, actually, the people, you know, people who we've worked with who've got out, we have a, a Life After Guantanamo project, you know, they just want, really, they want kind of what, what sounds like a simple life, you know, and that, that is incredibly rich to them, the having families and, and they want to getting get a, a job at and, the bakery and going to Blockbuster, watching the box set. <laughs> yeah, doing all the things that I, I, I failed to do. All right. Yeah. We're off to see Obama now. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he's, you promised, right? I that's... can see him. He's, okay. he's waving at me. He's tapping his watch. <laughs> yeah, he's busy man. He's got to go over. He's meeting yeah. uh, Kiefer Sutherland later on. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. 
Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Maya Foa. Rosie, don't go down there. That's overgrown now. That whole area is out of bounds until I would say October. And it changes so quickly, just in a few weeks. Your favorite path suddenly becomes a no go zone. I don't know. What's Maya Foa doing about that? Nothing. Uh, so I hope you found that interesting. I thought she was really fascinating, Maya Foa, and I'm very grateful to her for giving up her time. As I said, I put a link in the description of this podcast to Reprieve's website, where you can read more about their work and see if you would get out of Guantanamo faster than I would. Uh, there's also a link to the documentary that we spoke about that was such an important influence on Maya. Watching 14 Days in May as an 18-year-old made me uh, think differently about things. I haven't seen it for a while, actually, and I think I'm going to sit down and watch it again. Maybe show it to my sons, but I really do recommend it. And you can watch it on the BBC iPlayer. It's directed by Paul Hammond and uh, as we said features the lawyer Clive Stafford Smith who went on to found Reprieve and they're fighting in this documentary to prevent the execution of Edward Earl Johnson a Mississippi man that um, Clive believed had been wrongly accused and sentenced to death a very emotive documentary that I think would be interesting to you whether you agree with the death penalty or not Rosie come on She's right down the end of the path. She stood there for a while as I was calling her, looking at me going, no, I want to carry on. I want to keep walking. I know it's still a nice night, but I want to get back. I'm going to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers with my son. My wife is away visiting friends. So it is father-son movie night tonight. We're going to get to watch a film that... uh, would be given a very short bit of shrift were my wife around. Not that she turns her nose up at classic sci-fi all the time, but it's not her preferred genre. And it's been a long time since I've seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version, that is. Directed by... Who is it directed by? 
Oh, it's uh, Philip Kaufman, I think. I wanted to say Andy Kaufman. Kaufman? Kaufman? It's either directed by Philip, Andy, or Gerald. Kaufman. Kaufman. Anyway, I haven't seen it for a while, and it's one of those films that uh, was quite a big deal when I saw it as a young teen. Got it out on VHS, watched it with my friend Tom. It was very creepy, but I do remember there being some funny bits, and I warmed to the Jeff Goldblum character in there. It's got a strange cast. Leonard Nimoy is in it as well, a very young Jeff Goldblum. Donald Sutherland, of course, he's the protagonist. And so many weird, memorable bits. The most memorable, of course, being the uh, dog with man's face. Spoiler, there's a dog with a man's face (laughs) in one scene. It probably looks pretty clunky now, but at the time it, it was right up there in my top five of freakiest things that I had ever experienced at that point just beneath walking in on my parents having a shag. But anyway, that's another story. Rosie, come on, don't go down there, I said. Hey. All right. So listen, back next week with the Renegade Master, D4 Damager, Power to the People. No, back next week with another podcast coming up to that 100th episode also coming up to the Catcher in the Rye book club with Richard Iwadi and Sarah Pascoe I can tell you now that's going to be in about three weeks time you've still got time to read Catcher in the Rye if you want to join in on the fun as soon as the podcast comes out I'm going to go home now and watch some Glastonbury coverage and uh, probably feel a little pang of regret that I'm not there and then get over it very fast when I remember how comfortable I am in my sofa. Thank you very much indeed once again to Maya Foa and to Reprieve. Do visit their website, read more about what they do, maybe make a contribution to support their work if you feel you wish to do so. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his absolutely invaluable production support on this episode thank you Seamus thanks to Matt Lamont for his superb edit whizbottery on this episode cheers Matt appreciate it thanks man thanks to Acast for their ongoing support and thanks to you for downloading this episode I think a hug's in order Don't, don't back off there's no need to back off Come on, come here, come on. Hey, oh, hey. Okay, yeah, get in there. All right. Till next time. Please take the very best of care. And, um, you know, bear in mind, I love you. Bye!